Welcome to season two of 52 Reasons Why, the podcast brought to you by Protect Minnesota. Here, we look at the issue of gun violence and explore solutions that will reduce gun death in our state. We're using this platform to bring you a variety of perspectives and voices from across the state of Minnesota, all advocating for gun violence prevention. This podcast is a tool to help decision makers and stakeholders throughout our communities make informed decisions that will mitigate this public health issue. This is for the survivors of gun violence. This is for our loved ones that have been ripped from our lives. This is for the supporters, the volunteers, and the frontline workers who give selflessly and tirelessly to the movement. Thank you for tuning in and showing your support for gun violence prevention. I'm Ayolanda, the Director of Community Response and Education for Protect Minnesota. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of 52 Reasons Why, the Protect Minnesota podcast. I'm Jared Muscovitz, Director of Outreach and Organizing, back again with another uh, really interesting and I would say uh, kind of special episode. Um, As you all probably know by now, we've had some landmark decisions at the Supreme Court down over in D.C. this year. Um, Obviously, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is one, but here at Protect Minnesota, as you know, we focus on gun violence prevention and firearm injury and death reduction. And there was another landmark uh, SCOTUS decision, uh, the Bruin case uh, that came down where uh, the Supreme Court has made a decision that is going to drastically alter how gun laws are written and what is considered constitutional, what isn't constitutional going forward. And a lot of this is incredibly complicated stuff. Um, even as someone who's a former teacher, I can't dig myself into all of this. I can't get into all of it myself. So we realized we needed to bring someone on who could help us work through this and get a sense of what the Bruin decision means for us here in Minnesota and for everyone. So uh, to that end, I'm so pleased to be able to be joined today by uh, Megan Walsh. She's the visiting assistant clinical professor of law at the University of Minnesota Law School. And she's uh, joining us today to talk about Bruin. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. How's it going today? I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Well, you know, we're excited to get to learn about Bruin um, and to get a better sense of what all this means. Obviously, it's it's complicated, but it, it's a big deal. So we need to try to do our best just to distill it a little bit down to something where we can get a better sense of how it's going to impact us. Um, but I, th- I think it'd be great just to start with uh, with you giving us a sense of, of, of who you are, your background, and, and what's brought you uh, over to Minnesota. Great. Uh, well, I have kind of an interesting story. I have actually been involved in the gun violence prevention movement since it was authentically called the gun control movement in the 80s. Um, my best friend lost her dad to gun violence when we were five years old. And Jim Pizor was his name, and he actually set my parents up on a blind date. So I literally owe him my existence, my life, and again, grew up with a best friend who lost her dad to gun violence. It's actually a really tragic story. He was a lawyer, and he was doing his job. And back then, there were no metal detectors outside of courthouses. And the opposing party in one of his cases was in a wheelchair and was able to hide a handgun in a blanket, bring it into the courtroom, and ultimately shot Jim and shot the judge on the case. Oh, my goodness. So it was 
everywhere at the time. It was all over national news. It was all over local news. And the day after Jim died, Maureen, his wife, and my friend issued a public call for gun reform. And my family got very involved in that movement at that point and actually um, was able to get my hometown of Oak Park, Illinois to vote to enact a handgun ban in homes across Oak Park. And so they're the only political organization or the political city, it's a village, it's another story, but to actually vote to incorporate a handgun ban in homes. And that stayed in place until McDonald versus Chicago, which was a Supreme Court decision from 2010. So I personally grew up handing out gun control pamphlets on busy street corners and door knocking. And so this has been part of my life for a long time and it's very personal to me. Um, ultimately, I went on to go to law school myself and I was lucky enough to be an associate at Sidley Austin when the McDonald decision was being decided. So together with some of my Supreme Court practitioner colleagues at Sidley Austin, who are much fancier than I am, um, we were able to file an amicus brief on behalf of um, the Oak Park Committee that had organized the handgun ban in Oak Park. Um, ultimately, it was cited by Justice Breyer and Justice Stevens, um, both in dissents because we lost. But um, it was it was very important to be able to have a role in that. And ultimately, I left private practice and joined Everytown for Gun Safety's litigation group. And so that is now the largest team in the country focused on using the courts to promote gun violence prevention. I did a lot of Second Amendment work there. Um, and now I'm at University of Minnesota. And my appointments are actually right now in juvenile justice and family law but I have a, a special interest and commitment to working in gun violence prevention um, and specifically as it relates to the second amendment. And so I do research and writing on that. Wow, well, thanks for all that that intro. And I'm, I, I, that's, I'm so sorry that you, you've had to go through that. That's a horrible loss to have, have suffered and uh, for your friend to have gone through that, that's just awful. Um, wow, I had not heard about that. And, um, but that's obviously, and then to hear about what Oak Park did in response, um, that's actually really, that's very inspiring and very interesting. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I think what's really that, cool yeah. about that is that it was a grassroots effort. It was yeah. not a top-down decision. It was the community coming together and making decision. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what jumped into my head is um, what happened in Dunblane, Scotland um, in the, I believe in the 90s, uh, where there was a, a, a school shooting there and with a handgun. And as a result, they just they said we're done with handguns in that town, um, which is again completely grassroots, but born out of, you know, born out of a tragedy and a, of, of an incident that, you know, that inspired people to act. Um, you know, we do grassroots work here. That's the basis of everything that we do. So, you know, people need to know it works. You can, you can, you can accomplish things. Uh, you know, important things from the grassroots level. Um, I think it would be good for us to move to kind of getting us a general sense of how the Bruin lawsuit um, or, or how it became, you know, got its way to the Supreme Court. So just generally speaking, um, can you explain to us how lawsuits end up being decided by the Supreme Court? Because it's from afar, it just seems like they just appear, but that's just not how it works. It can't be how it works. So so how do how does a lawsuit work its way up to being inevitably being decided by the, the highest bench in the land? 
Absolutely. So, of course, you can't just go to the Supreme Court and have them hear your case on the first instance. So there are, I don't know if this is interesting to you guys, but there are a couple of instances where the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction and can take cases, but they're not applicable here. Mm-hmm. So cases start out at a district court level with one judge who is responsible for fact finding and then applying the facts to the law and making a decision. And then if you lose that case, you have an opportunity to appeal. And generally that would be a three judge panel. So to win, you would have to get two out of the three votes. And the court of appeals role is not to look back at the factual decisions that are being made. It's to really apply the law and figure out whether or not the district court judge misapplied the law. And then in that case, um, if you're in state court, you would then go up to your state Supreme Court if you wanted to appeal, um, or if you have gone through the federal federal system, then you can apply. It's called a petition for certiorari to have your case heard by the Supreme Court. And even then, it's not guaranteed that your case would be heard because one of the important things that the justices do is decide what cases to take. So that's the process. It takes a number of years to get all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, yeah, it definitely takes a long time. I, 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 that's good to know, but I, do you have a sense of how many, like, how, I mean, because it seems like the, the, the Supreme Court only hears, you know, a handful of cases a year. So that's gotta be like, what, less than 1% of all the cases that try to get there? It is definitely a low number and I don't have that number off the top of my head, but um, yeah, that could easily be right. Yeah, so I mean, it looks like I'm just did a doing a quick Google search because that's how we do things here. And you know, they hear a hundred to 150 of more of the set more than 7,000 that they're asked to review every year. So yeah, you've got to be really lucky to get it in in front of them. Which of course, then that's when these decisions become landmark decisions. The ones that are big enough to be heard by them are clearly going to have you know the largest impact. So I mean, that's good to know. But it's it's certainly a numbers game, and it takes a long time. So this has been in the works. Like there have been people who have been trying to get this done for a long time. This is not something that just springs up. In six months, we get a huge landmark decision. It's it's going through a lot of processes. Um, so I think I would love to know more about um, what you can tell us about the process that Bruin, this lawsuit, went through. So what can you tell us about, um, you know, who filed this argument um, and what the basis of their argument is and what they were trying to and ultimately did accomplish with their lawsuit? Sure. So your point just there is actually really interesting because a lot of strategy by the parties and then also the gun gun rights movement and the gun violence prevention movement goes into what cases they send to the Supreme Court. And so one of the strategies that the gun rights movement has adopted is to find the most extreme laws and challenge those laws. So they're not challenging the ones that are generally accepted all over the country and trying to get those to the Supreme Court. They found laws that were kind of in unique categories. And that's mostly what happened here with Bruin. So Bruin was brought by the New York State and Rifle Pistol Association, and also by a couple individuals who had applied to get a permit to carry in public in New York. Now, you might have seen um, TV shows that even address this and how unusual um, New York's approach was because it, if you live in New York City, it is very difficult for any typical person to get a permit to carry. Um, 
In greater New York, it was a little easier, but still really difficult. So New York's law was a little different than most of the country's laws regarding permitting and carry. So generally, um, in about half the states, you are required to get a permit to carry a firearm in public. And so a state might require you to show you are a law-abiding citizen by passing a background check. Some states require training, either in the classroom or in a range. Um, there are other um, varying state requirements along the way. Minnesota now has uh, an age limitation, so individuals between 18 before they're 21 cannot carry, that is currently being litigated. And um, in these situations, um, so most of the states now say that if you meet all of these requirements, the state shall issue you a permit to carry. New York said something different. So New York said that applicants, in addition to meeting all these other requirements, have to show proper cause. And what that means is to, they have to show that they have a need greater than the average citizen to carry in public. So this used to be very common. And Minnesota used to have this law that the state may issue a permit to carry a firearm. And so I heard a police officer once explain that, for instance, if you had a job where you transported jewelry, so you're constantly transporting very expensive equipment or jewelry, you might have a need greater than the average citizen to have a permit to carry. Um, and New York's again, was, was very strict. So you couldn't just go in and say, I'm scared. I wanna carry a gun for my own personal safety. And um, that law existed in about five states in the Washington State, uh, the Washington DC area. And so it accounted for about 25% of the population. Um, so what is the, um, so the, the Bruin case was filed, like, as you mentioned, people were trying to apply for handguns to, oh, to carry, obviously, I think it's con to conceal carry. I don't know if New York has open carry or concealed carry laws. And here in Minnesota, we just have carry. There's no right. difference between open and conceal. It's simply a, a one permit to carry. Um, so that's another kind of jargony term you're going to hear uh, a lot when you're talking about um, you know legislation and, and potential changes to our gun laws here in Minnesota. Um, so this lawsuit was filed and the New York Rifle and Pistol Association, that's the New York State chapter of the NRA, correct? I think it is at least. It's it's a state analog for sure. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So um so the decision went through the the it was originally decided, then it was appealed, it got its way through the Supreme Court, and it was decided the Supreme Court decided to hear it. And of course, um, you know, the it's the Supreme Court themselves that decides what they're gonna hear and what they're not gonna hear. And when we heard that this case would be heard by the court, that it was gonna reach the highest level and, and effectively a decision was going to be made on whether or not New York's specific laws were or not were not unconstitutional. Then of course, we kind of had to look just based at like, what's the breakdown of the court? And we kind of knew where this was gonna go when we, you know, we understand the, the makeup of the, the, the Supreme Court, who sits on it and where they align politically and what that means. Um, so. I'm wondering now um, what you can tell us about so that they found that the laws that New York had were unconstitutional. And was it specifically this? It was the difference between shall issue and may issue, or was it more about this at needing to prove this 
additional burden? Yes. So um, they basically address both. Ultimately, um, we absolutely knew how this case would turn out before the decision came down. We just didn't know how far this court was going to go. Mm -hmm. And um, in this situation, the actual ruling on New York statute doesn't have as much of a significance long term as what the court did about the standard of review. So ultimately, they found that any state that has a proper cause requirement or any state that has a may issue permit scheme was unconstitutional. But again, that only applies to five states and the District of Columbia. Um, but what they also did was they changed the standard of review. And so it used to be that uh, courts would look first when they were reviewing a gun regulation, first they would look at, is it regulating conduct that's protected by the Second Amendment? So if it is, then they go to the next step, which is trying to evaluate, is the government's regulation doing what it's trying to do? Does it actually make the public safer? Does it actually reduce gun violence? Um, and even though the Supreme Court had not mandated that test itself, the course of appeals across the country had coalesced around this standard. And so it had been used in thousands of cases across the country. And then the Supreme Court took this opportunity in Bruin to then completely change that. And so the real effect of Bruin is that every gun regulation is being looked at under a completely new lens. So instead of looking at, does this gun law actually work? Does it do its job? The court is now looking at the text of the Second Amendment and what historical laws are similar to the law at issue. So generally called the text and history approach. Wow. Okay. So that that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Um, and I and I'm learning this on the fly here. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm not a constitutional scholar in the slightest. Um, so. You know, this is as informative for me as it is hopefully for our listeners, because it, it's definitely that's something that I want to dig into more. Um, so let me see if I'm getting this straight, because it sounds to me like this is when we are thinking about why this is a landmark decision. This is the this is the thing that is the landmark, at least for me, because what, you, what I'm hearing is that we've spent all this time deciding whether gun laws were constitutional and if they were accomplishing the mission of the law that it was trying to accomplish, the goal of the legislation. And now what I'm hearing is that that second part is not even being considered anymore. And it's just about the text of the Second Amendment, which you're going to, you can ask a hundred people, a hundred Americans what the Second Amendment means. You're going to get probably 80 different answers with nuance. And uh, that's going to, and then just historical laws. I, I'm having a hard time wrapping myself around why this hasn't been more maybe properly reported by the media. Is this just because this is hard for people like me, a layperson, to understand? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think it has been communicated to the public how significant this change in the test is going to be. Yeah, because all of the all of the gun regulations that courts have held to be constitutional in the more than 10 years since Heller was first decided um, are all going to be looked at again. And so very common laws like background check laws, um, age limitations, um, limitations on um, 
bump stocks and, you know, all the things that we have been reading about and accept as um, normal constitutional regulations of, of guns um, is now up for grabs, to be honest. Um, I, I think that things like background checks ultimately will be found to be constitutional. But every time a state passes a gun regulation, they have to find now an analogy um, to a historical law that was passed at the time of um, either the 14th Amendment being passed or when the Second Amendment was written. And so that is a test now. Did the framers, did the founders think that the kind of regulation that is being challenged is actually um, allowed under the Second Amendment? And I think we should, I'm just going to do the teacher thing and be really quickly here. Just the 14th Amendment, of course, says that no state shall make or enforce any law that which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States. So we're talking about, you know, state precedent versus federal precedent. And then we're talking about the Second Amendment, which, of course, is the, the right to bear arms. And as I mentioned before, we don't have to get into the details about how that is. People feel differently about what that means. Wow. I mean, so... I guess my next question is, and like I feel like this is kind of how we wrap up, but I, I mean, I, I you you clearly can talk about this for a long time. I'm gonna have a lot of questions about this after, <laughs> but um, you know, I'm now I'm just wondering, you know, what can you tell? Can you, what more can you tell us about like how this decision is gonna impact Minnesotans going forward? What are things we could look for to look to see that we can then say, oh, that's that's a result of Bruin or that has influence that was influenced by Bruins, uh, the changes that Bruin have, has brought about, you know, what can you, what can you expound on about how this is going to impact us? Cause what you've just told us now, it's like, you know, you, you know, universal background checks may continue to be considered legal, but maybe not. Cause what I'm hearing from you and thinking, how will the, you know, the pro gun movement, you know, move forward in this new reality of how things are being reviewed you know, it, it it tells me that they might be coming for that too. That this they might be pushing to, sh to say that background checks are unconstitutional. And I, what my fear is, is that because of the makeup of the Supreme Court as it is now, that it, they just have to get a case there, and then it's gonna be it's gonna happen. Like, am I reading too far into it, or is that potentially something down the road we could be looking at? Like, what does this mean for us, and in, in terms of like real life? Um, you know, the laws that are on the books, how we make our communities safer, like this is going to change everything. So what what should we expect? Yes, you're exactly right. This could potentially change everything. And one of the problems is we don't really know how this law is going to be applied, how this test is going to be applied by the courts, because you, I know, have a historical background, are probably much more equipped to answer questions about historical gun laws than I would be, but it's gonna be the lawyers who have to identify historical laws to be able to support their case that gun regulations are constitutional now. Um, absolutely, the gun rights lobby um, and gun rights groups will be heavily active in the courts as they have been for, for some time, um, but they will say, you know, we have a war chest ready to go. Um, and I'm sure background checks are going to be challenged at some point along the way. Um, certainly extreme risk protection orders will be challenged. Um, lots of regulations will be challenged or are currently being challenged. Um, as it specifically relates to Minnesota, as I said before, we have a may issue permit loss. Oh, we know we don't, sorry. We have a shall issue permit law. So 
our lot is untouched by Bruin right now. So now here in Minnesota, you have to go get a permit to be able to carry your firearm. And so nothing about that has changed. But one of the big questions that is coming out of Bruin is what kind of limitations the government can place on sensitive places. So you and your audience may know that there's been um, a lot of press about a case involving guns at the fair. And in that case, the Minnesota courts have said um, it is completely constitutional to be able to prohibit guns at the fair. But now the courts are going to be looking at Bruin saying, okay, back when the 14th Amendment or back when the Second Amendment was written, did people think it was reasonable to prohibit guns at a fair? Oh, and boy. so we don't know how courts are going to interpret this. We don't know. And, and the thing that really is hard for me to understand is why aren't we looking at if these gun laws work? Why does that not matter anymore? Um, because that seems so important to, to the way we look at all kinds of constitutional questions and specifically for gun violence when it's such an important social issue. This is really a situation where the law is diverging significantly from public support and where the public is about gun violence because there are lots of people who believe that the second amendment protects an individual right to have and carry a gun. And there are lots of those same people who believe that background checks are completely constitutional and should be required. Those two things are not in conflict with the majority of the population. Uh, this is very interesting. Um, yeah, to, for you to bring up, I mean, you brought up the Heller decision, right? Um, you know, the Heller decision, I think what I took from it, uh, obviously it says that people have the right to, you know, own and carry fire to own firearms for personal protection but it also said that that right is not unlimited like any constitutional right by most rights it's not an unlimited right but it from a, i get the sense that the pro the right side of this movement the, on the right not the i wouldn't say the correct side of this movement but the other side of the movement believes that there should no be no restrictions on firearm ownership whatsoever that it is an unlimited right in the in the constitution um i'm I'm also really worried about this idea that we're not going to look at anything in a more modern context. I mean, because you just asked the question, you, you, you proposed this idea, right? Like, what would we have said about carrying guns at, at the state fair back in the time of the 14th Amendment? And my brain as a you know former U.S. history teacher goes, they'd be allowed 100%. Like, that's just a fact. Like, you just you'd walk around at the fair with the pistol on your hip and no one would think twice because that was the culture at the time. That's not our culture now. I feel, I agree. I, for the life of me, cannot understand why this idea that we don't look at the context is not being considered anymore. It feels so backwards to me. And I want to bring up a specific um, thing because you mentioned red flag laws or ERPO laws, extreme risk risk protection orders. Um, you know, the data tells us that states with ERPO laws have seen an 11 percent reduction in gun homicides. So, but what what you're telling me now is that that doesn't matter. And when we look at the legality of an issue, am I, am I correct? And that's I am I distilling that down? Like we're that does no longer matter from a legal perspective that we know 11% less gun homicides. That doesn't matter, right? Yeah, as as far as we can tell, based on Bruin, and there haven't been that many courts that have interpreted it yet, but we'll see that as more and more cases go forward in the next couple months and years. But yes, there's no place for a court to consider that under wow. a text and history test. 
Um, and the thing about Heller is it was a landmark decision because it was the first time that the court held that there was an individual right to keep and bear arms, but it didn't really change the landscape that much as far as what was constitutional under the Second Amendment. Generally, all of the courts applying the Heller decision found that most gun laws were constitutional. And of course, as you said, it expressly said, and this was written by Justice Scalia, that there are laws that are presumptively constitutional. It was presumptively constitutional that a state could ban a felon from having a firearm. And that is because largely we know now, because Justice Stevens at the time uh, shared his dissent before the majority opinion actually came out in an effort to get Justice Scalia to calm down his language in the opinion. And also in that situation, we had Justice Kennedy, who was still a little bit of a flip vote in that situation. And so we had a much more narrow opinion in Heller. Bruin opens the floodgates and we don't know where the boundaries are going to be. Yeah, we're going to have to unfortunately watch these new boundaries kind of play out in real time. And that's ultimately I, I don't like I don't like to fear monger that we don't we do not try to do that here. Um, but ultimately, all I can think is that that just leads to people getting hurt and people dying in the meantime, while we apparently try to figure out what the new rules are. Uh, that's not good. I, I don't. That does not give me, um, you know, uh, a positive feeling about what kind of challenges we could see to pre-existing laws that are already on the books. Um, wow. So I mean, well, it's good to know that in the meantime, that there's no like on the ground impact here in Minnesota. So that's a good thing for us to understand. But I think what I'm learning here is that we need to be very, very conscious of uh, lawsuits and potential challenges coming forward as early as next year uh, to see what will and what won't make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no reason to believe that any gun case that goes to the SCOTUS is going to end our way in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We know how the justices are going to vote with the current makeup of the bench. And what we don't know is when they're going to take the next case, because after Heller, there weren't enough justices willing to vote to take another gun case for a number of years until they had justices Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh on the bench. And that changed everything. Now that they're there, I mean, my I think we need to operate under the assumption that they want they have an appetite for these kinds of cases um not just around firearms but around other things because we're seeing what it feels to me is it's just we are reverting laws back to where they were centuries ago and 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 again for the life of me i can't understand why anyone would not want to take modern context into consideration when making important decisions um wow well i we could talk about this for a lot longer. We could longer. talk about this for a yeah, long time. This is, I mean, as you can hear it in my voice, I, you know, I usually come into these episodes kind of knowing exactly what we're going to talk about. But this one I knew was probably going to throw me a little bit, and it definitely did because um, I definitely feel like I have a better sense of what this decision means. And I, if, if I do feel that way, I'm sure that our listeners are feeling like they've got a little bit more. So, uh Megan Walsh, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and helping us dig through what this means and putting it in real terms. Um, you know, uh, 
where do you have any uh, advice? Where can people go to learn more about you know the uh, Minnesota Law School? If you have any uh, suggestions for places to go to learn about more about what we've talked about, you know, what what, what do you have anything you want to kind of plug? Um, well, I want to plug Protect Minnesota for one. Thank you so much for your work on the ground. You've been such a strong movement in our state for decades, and I'm really thankful for all of your work. Um, University of Minnesota is a wonderful law school. Um, please come check us out. Um, I hope to have more scholarship and activity coming out of the University of Minnesota Law School on the Second Amendment and these issues going forward. And um, I don't I don't actually know if if I can point you to a place where there would be more information about this. For the lawyers out there, I have a CLE um, through Minnesota CLE that I did, and I have an upcoming CLE um, on the same issues. But um, yeah, it, it's an ever-changing landscape at this point. And it, these first cases interpreting Bruin are gonna be good insight into how things could go. But one of the other things that I think is gonna happen is you're gonna get different decisions from different jurisdictions. So one judge is gonna say, yes, there were plenty of historical laws that justify this gun regulation. And the, another judge in a different state is going to say, I don't believe any of these gun laws are justified. I can't find anything in the historical record that really helps it out. And that's really antithetical to what the gun lobby wants. I mean, one thing we always hear from the gun lobby is, they want laws to be universal. They want everyone to understand what the gun laws are and they should apply in the same way all over the country. And this is not getting us there. Well, at least that's maybe gonna slow that pursuit down for them. So that's good to know. We can leave it on a, maybe a somewhat kind of uh, positive note, which is always a good way to do this. So um, we'll put some links in the description uh, to the U of M Law School and uh, so people can check that out. Uh, Megan Walsh, uh, again, thank you so much for your time and for, for helping us break this down. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of 52 Reasons Why, the Protect Minnesota podcast. I'm Jared Muskovitz, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Protect Minnesota, the podcast where we explore 52 reasons why gun violence is an issue in our state. If you want to listen to past episodes of the podcast or for more information about how you can be involved in this movement, visit protectmn.org. Until next time.